The Outspoken Bible. Conversations about the Word. A podcast from Scottish Bible Society. Hello and welcome to the first episode of a brand new season. This is episode one of season five of the Outspoken Bible and we are back in 2023 with more Bible conversation and scriptural curiosity. I'm Fiona Stewart and I'm joined as ever by Neil Glover. Hello, Neil. Hello there, Fiona. Good Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, very encouraging. Lots of people appearing and since then it's been cold but mm. not cold on the one day I tried to go skiing with my daughter. Ooh. Oh, it all melted. That's deeply disappointing. Glenn, isn't it? she was was a massive, hard packed melting ice. That's the reality of Scottish skiing, isn't it? I know. Certainly my I experience know. of it. Anyway, uh, it's good to see you. Now, this episode we're joined by Elaine Duncan from the Scottish Bible Society. Unfortunately, Jen can't be with us today, so in her place, Elaine has kindly agreed to come and join the conversation. Elaine, you're the chief executive of SBS, but you also have a global role within the United Bible Societies. Um, we'll find out a wee bit more about that in a moment, but in the meantime, it is really good to see you. So thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be joining the team for today. Hello, good. Elaine. Hello. Now, a quick reminder to listeners that you can, of course, contact us with questions and comments. You can email outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org or you can do that via the SBS socials. And if you like what you're listening to, then why not recommend the podcast to a friend? We'd love to grow the audience in 2023. And really, you're the best place people to help us do that because you're the people who have friends, we hope. You can pass on um, a link maybe to the show and encourage them to listen. Now, in any group discussion, it is good practice, I think, to get participants to say something in the first few minutes to get past their nerves and let them have their voice heard. So before I say any more, I thought I would just ask you both a question. What are you most looking forward to in 2023? Neil. Oh, it's funny. I've, I've stayed away from resolutions um i suppose i'm working on this book so i'm looking forward to having that finished i'm looking forward to things in our church in the the those of us in the church of scotland will know about this there's lots of discussions about what happens with buildings and churches at the moment but i've become really convinced that it's we, we just need to focus, not just need to focus, but we need to focus again on sharing our faith. So there there have been signs in that in our congregation. Um, what else? I'm looking forward to running again. Haven't really mm. run very well uh, for the last few years, so hopefully get that back. Good, good. Elaine? I'm looking forward to lots of new things that are happening, both at the Scottish Bible Society and with the United Bible Society, so on a global level, we've been through lots of changes. And so it it feels to me like 2023 is a year of new opportunities. Uh, Inevitably, there will be some new challenges, but that kind of gears you up to say, you know, this is a year I'm going to have to really depend on the Lord and keep close to him, looking to know how he's leading and guiding through the newness of some of the things that we're doing. Very good. Very good. Well, I'm sure those resonate with listeners as well. Things to Mm. to look forward to and uh, prepare ourselves for as we come into the challenges of 2023. Now, Elaine, I've got a new segment. I tested it out on the pair of you before we started and neither of you got it. So I'm not convinced it's a particularly good title. (laughs) But I thought we would do pick a lane. Pick a lane. (laughs) 
speculate. Neil said it sounded like I was saying pick your nose. So let, let's uh, let's anyway uh, go into a little bit of a, a segment where we're going to ask you some questions, Elaine. So later on, we are going to plunge into our first uh, episode of the six that we're doing, charting the account of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So this is a warning that if you're reading along with us, you might want to pause the podcast now before we pick Elaine and uh, read First Kings. <laughs> doesn't matter seven. how many times you I say know, it. I know, it doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work. No, <laughs> Let's let's rehabilitate it. Let's keep saying it I until know, I like it, it works. Pickling. I just like it as an expression. Anyway, you might want to pause the podcast at this point and read First Kings seventeen because that's the chapter we'll be talking about in this episode. And uh, towards the end of the episode, Neil, I think you're going to introduce a new segment. So Glover's off is is gone, but we've got something else. First of all, though, it's time to interview our guest contributor. And I thought it would be nice to find out a wee bit more, Elaine, about what you do, who you are. Why don't you tell us, first of all, just about your, the various roles that you have within the Bible Society family? Okay. I think sometimes when people are listening to me, uh, they find my accent a little bit strange. So I'm going to explain that first for those that haven't ever heard me speak before. Uh, so I grew up in Cumbria with a Scottish dad. And I've lived in Cumbria, Yorkshire, and Scotland. And I think I've just collected bits of accent everywhere I've gone. So that explains kind of how I speak. I mean, I find that fascinating because I've known you a long time and your accent hasn't changed in that time. Interesting. Oh. That's a whole topic. Do people sometimes that's... think you have a Scottish accent? Yes. People in England assume I'm Scottish. Really? People in Scotland know I'm not Scottish. So... Yeah, I just say I'm a mongrel. So anyway, my role at the Scottish Bible Society, I'm the CEO, so that means I just bring leadership and um, to the staff team, to the volunteers. Uh, it means that I am uh, doing management roles within uh, the our Edinburgh office. I also speak quite a bit, um, teaching the Bible or just speaking about uh, the Bible Society work in churches and at different groups around Scotland. But also there's always been this international element to my role. And then three years ago or four years ago, um, I was um, elected onto our global council. Uh, and then um, three years ago, elected as chair of the global council. And we just one of the big changes we've been through is at our governance level for the global work. So I'm now chair of the Fellowship Council, which unites all the Bible societies together, and also chair of the Board of Trustees that looks after the global work uh, from a financial point of view, a legal point of view, just the normal trustee stuff. So um, lots to keep me busy. Yeah, it must be quite interesting actually as well because obviously within that you'll have a real range of um, nations, you know, you know, different approaches to to the Bible and to literacy and all that sort of stuff. But I guess also in terms of of wealth and poverty and so on, what are the things that you you would identify that you're feeling quite encouraged by at the moment around the global picture? I think the thing that encourages me most and has done, I think, the whole time I've worked with the Bible Society is the courage and the convictions and the dedication of my colleagues, many of whom are working in really, really tough situations. Um, and But they, they sense a real call from God, um, committed to getting the Bible into people's hands, praying that the Lord will speak it into people's hearts, and keeping going. 
despite incredible challenges. Mm -hmm. And those challenges can be anything from war. You know, we, we might mention what's happening in, in Ukraine a, a little bit later in the in the podcast. But, you know, the Bible Society is still just really active uh, in Ukraine in the midst of, of the war. There are probably at least 20 other countries in the world where there is armed conflict mm -hmm. of some description. And in most of those places, we would also have a Bible society who is still active. But then sometimes the challenges come because the government are questioning the registration of a Bible society. Sometimes there are challenges about, about leadership um, in, in the, the Bible society. Sometimes there's tension between a general secretary and the board of a Bible society. So there are all sorts of different things. I mean, I, I just think of some of the East Asian Bible societies and they cope with like what we call natural disasters on a regular basis, whether it's earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes erupting, just things that affect life in a nation. And the Bible society folk just beaver away faithfully. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And and what about some of the challenges? I, I was thinking about the fact that, that you know the challenge of the digital age to something that well well I was going to say by its name indicates a paper <laughs> object, but maybe it doesn't. There must be a, a a challenge to all societies to adapt towards a digital age. Yes, the way people interact with the Bible has has changed for many, many people. So we're so used to talking about a book. And many of our Bible societies still around the world, their, their, their pattern of getting the Bible into people's hands would be through bookshops and, and the sale of books. Then, of course, digital um, opens up tremendous opportunities for Bible distribution. Mm -hmm. You know, so people that maybe couldn't afford to buy a Bible can, but but are able to have a computer or access to a computer or to a phone, they can get access in uh, on the internet to a Bible. So it opens up all sorts of possibilities for mm -hmm. distribution. Mm -hmm. I think some of us are, are wondering about what that means for how we engage with the Bible. And I'd be really interested, I mean, you've mentioned, Fiona, how people can kind of contact the, the podcast. And it'd be really great to, to hear people's views about this, mm -hmm. about how they find it best to interact with the Bible. So, you know, I know lots of people who are committed to their e-readers, um, but they still like to have physical books. You know, I probably fall mm -hmm. into that category, but that might be a generational thing, mm -hmm. you know. So I have a Kindle because it's great when I'm traveling. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoy holding a book and reading a, like a novel or, or something as a physical as a physical book. And it strikes me when we when we access the Bible, say, through our smartphones, it's quite a two dimensional experience. You know, so you're if you're trying to find the, the, the book, you've got the list of the contents and things. But if you've got the Bible in your hands, it, it, it's much more three dimensional. You, you can see that is a book. It's it's got this sense of it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. So yeah, I I just think the whole digital thing is really helpful, but also raises some questions as to whether it's on its own 
what else can be added yeah. if it's not just digital? Yeah, I, I have to say, I think about that a lot in church. When I look around and, you know, everybody's reading the, reading scriptures from their phones. And that's great that people are doing that, that they're holding it in their own hands and reading it from their own device rather than just relying on what's on screen. But I, I, I often think, oh, how do we, how do we contextualise that passage? How, how do you have a sense of where that fits within that story. So yeah, really, really interesting challenges to think about. Uh, quick fire, couple of quick fire questions. What keeps you up at night, Elaine? When anybody on my team is struggling in a, mm-hmm. any particular way, and because I'm involved in the global stuff, you know, uh, so I hear different things mm-hmm. about colleagues in different parts of the world. So anything to do with people and the challenges or suffering that they're going through that that's usually the thing that will bother me in the middle of the night or yeah. you know um keep me awake i think neil wants yeah, to ask something. i've got a question for you Elaine. Um, this podcast was born out of the bible 2020 initiative and the app has only just stopped working um <laughs> this is so, a complaint <laughs> no no it's not a complaint i knew i knew it was going to happen um Reflecting back on Bible 2020, what what do you think was the impact of that? Uh, all these people putting a voice uh, recordings, video recordings onto that video wall from all around the world. What's your own reflections on how, what did Bible 2020, what, what were the kind of rippling out waves from it? I think it did a number of different things. And at one level, we're really sorry we had to kind of close it down. But, we, you know, we we just couldn't manage to to maintain it. The fact that it was Bible 2020 and we kept it going until yeah, the yeah. end of 2022, I think, was, was pretty good. And there have been feedback from different countries, different people in different parts of the world about their disappointment uh, about it. I don't think we'll know the real answer to your question, Neil. Mm. I think it's only the Lord that will see that. But the the impact of people speaking aloud the word of God in their own context, mm. doing that in their own language, but knowing that they're part of a global community mm. who are doing that. So one of the impacts, I think, was a huge encouragement uh, for, for people in, in different uh, countries. And it was amazing how quickly a sense of community mm. developed. So um, I, I remember being at an event at the end of February in 2020. So we were just before mm. lockdown. And somebody said to me, um, Do you, have you heard how, and they mentioned the name of somebody in New Zealand. And I must have looked kind of slightly blankly at them. And they said, Oh no, she, we've we kind of have recognised her on the video wall with Bible Twenty Twenty, and then she's not been there for a few weeks. So we wondered if she was okay. Mm. So here's somebody in Scotland suddenly being concerned about somebody they've never met before in New Zealand because there was this community sense of we're we're all reading the Bible aloud together. Uh, we were able to find out how she was, and she was fine. <laughs> and I think then kind of uh, reconnected. Uh, but, you, you know, so certainly there was something about the community. And there was also, going back to Fiona's question about digital, there was something about some Bible societies were able to explore digital possibilities that they hadn't explored before. And that was great. So think about Costa Rica in particular, where... Um, the people, the internet there wasn't sufficiently strong that people could use the app, 
but they use their Facebook group to I- issue the readings for every day. Mm. You know, so people found their own ways to make it work in their in their context. So it was it was yeah, it was just a really beautiful thing that obviously served us particularly through lockdown and mm. the pandemic. Mm. But then I think, you know, continued and maintained that sense of people in community engaging with God's word. Lovely. Good. Well, thank you, Elaine. It's a, a pleasure to have you with us and uh, we appreciate what all that you're going to bring to our discussion today. It'd be fair to say that, you're, you you know, you started this morning saying, well, it's quite, quite nerve-wracking joining, joining this team, but it feels like you're part of the team already. Mm-hmm. Now, regular listeners will know that we spent a good chunk of time last year debating the merits of verse numbers and chapter headings <laughs> <laughs> because we were reading along with the Light and Life Gospel. That's still available, by the way, if you want to get hold of that, John's Gospel. Um, but for the first part of this year, we're diving into the Old Testament. So so I don't have a page number for today. Shock horror. Um, we're beginning our exploration of the story of Elijah, and that's recorded in First Kings. So today, the main focus of our encounter is a, in First Kings 17. Now, Neil, at our plan me- planning meeting at the end of 2022, you advocated strongly for some Old Testament engagement. What is it about this particular section of the Old Testament that draws you in? Just to wind back slightly... Um, a lot of this was has its roots in uh, when I learned church history, and we were taught church history by, by a, a, quite a slightly taciturn Irishman called Ian Hazlett, just a mumble like that. Um, and a, the way you learn church history is you you learn all the heresies, as uh, so you learn about Docetism, who thought that Jesus was a bit of a ghost, and you learn about um, Marcion. Well, Marcionism, we'll come to that in a minute. They wanted rid of the Old Testament, and the Montanists, who were slightly crazy and went off into the mountains of Asia Minor, and the Arians, who thought that Jesus wasn't God but a very special creature. So you learn about all of these. And at the end of the the whole lecture, somebody stuck up their hand and said, hey, "Doctor Hazlett, which." Um, which heresies of the ancient church do you still think are present today? And he just went, Marcionism. He said, too much New Testament lovey-dovey stuff. (laughs) That was his view. And uh, he said that we didn't pay enough attention to the Old Testament. And so that was partly in the back of my head when I was arguing for some kind of Old Testament interlude between having read John's Gospel and what we're going to come on to in in the rest of the year. Um, Neil, Fiona and I were at an event last year and it was an Old Testament scholar who was addressing Uh the meeting and he regularly made reference to the fact it is two thirds of the Bible, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he was really strong on that, wasn't he? <laughs> so yeah, and I also I've always had a passion for Elijah because to use that that overused word, his journey is something I find quite remarkable. It's surprising. It doesn't fit the mold, and we're going to be coming to that as we go through these chapters. So that was another big part of it. Very good. Very good. Okay, well, we're looking forward to this. There's no Marcionism here. No. Marcionism. That's one of the words that you use that that has really stuck with me, Neil. I keep thinking about it. And then I have to confess, I have to go and look up to remember what it means. Have you read your Levitical code yet? 
Uh, but part way through. <laughs> One of the jobs of somebody must be to go through and, and go through all the outspoken Bibles and work out all the time and say, I must read more about that. <laughs> Could you go and read a bit more about that? <laughs> yes, indeed. Anyway, so Elijah, he, he just sort of springs onto the scene, to, as far as I can see. Nowhere. Just says, now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab. So, so he just is suddenly there. Why is that? Where does he come from? Do we know anything about his background? I think that's almost the point. Tishbe and Gilead? No, I I needed to check that. I don't think it's mentioned very many other places. I'll need to check. Um, The the context here is that we are in the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel begins with David and Solomon. Saul is the first three kings of the United Kingdom. And then uh, during the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, partly out of judgment for the fact that Solomon has gone after other gods, the kingdom splits and the southern tribes of Judah and of Benjamin and their Levites stay around David and they become the kind of holders in the long run of the story. But you have this northern kingdom where uh, they they break away. They, it's um, The king is Jeroboam, and he becomes a notorious figure because he creates a new temple. And time and time again in the book of Kings, we see this uh, phrase, the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to commit. So it's this kind of darker, uh, less orthodox, more recalcitrant northern kingdom, the place where the chaos is happening, that, that our story is going to take us. Um, we're about 40 years into the life of the Northern Kingdom, and it's only going to have about 100 years left. So we're about the year 870 BC, and uh, a king called Ahab, who is even more notorious than Jeroboam, it tells us a moment ago that he marries a woman called Jezebel. She brings an Ashtarah pole into the temple, and we discover that Ahab has provoked God more than any other king who has come before him. So we're in this kind of broken away northern kingdom, one that has lost its sense of covenant and and identity, and it's now under the rule of a man who's even worse than everybody who came before him. And it's into this that suddenly the prophet will come. And up to now in the story, there's been the odd mention of prophets. Uh, We talked about David and the company of prophets at one point, but they don't really play a big part of the story. But now Elijah comes, the prophet, and everything now is going to be different because of the word. And that's a very important word, word, which he speaks. And we always kind of want to interpret scripture through scripture, don't we? So uh, uh, this idea of who Elijah is, there's there's not very much here to tell us much about who he is. But is he specially anointed for this? What's, what's, his, what's his background? Elaine, I think you, you were wanting to pick up on some of that. Yes, I, I was just going to add to what Neil said there, though, about the, you know, the, I think it's always worth remembering that when we're, we're in the Book of Kings, these are kings who are ruling under God, you know, they're, they're, they're rulers of God's chosen nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that then puts um, an, another perspective on you know, what is, the Bible describes as their kind of their wickedness, their evil, their rebellion. I mean, they are supposed to be, in a sense, vice regents of the of of the living the living God. But yeah, but Elijah is is fascinating, isn't it? Because as Neil said, he 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 just kind of 
lands on the on the scene with this incredible declaration. And yet in the New Testament, in the letter that James writes, James refers to Elijah as somebody ordinary like the rest of us. Um, you know, and he is a fascinating character that, you know, I think these next episodes of the podcast will will tease out. But but I also wonder about, you know, we, we've no idea really where Tishbe is. So so there's something you know he's not he's not a member of any elite he's not he is this kind of ordinary person who then seems to be incredibly powerfully used by god but something you know and and i think because of the way he appears say in the trans transfiguration alongside moses this elijah um we think of him as something very special and what he will do is very special, but there's this ordinariness about him as well, which I think is good to 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 note. And there is something quite encouraging for those of us that just live pretty ordinary sort of lives. That here he comes out of obscurity. There's no great kind of family history given. There's no great you know accolades about things that he's done before he appears on the scene and gives this prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is something reassuring there about just ordinary life. Yeah, yeah. Can I, can I pick up on that as well, just to say, Elaine, you know, you said us who are ordinary Christians. And it, it, pardon me, I did slightly bump on that because, you know, you're chief executive of the Scottish Bible Society and you're chair of the of the United Bible Societies, which are, but it's interesting, readers can't, er, listeners can't see, Elaine is currently shaking her head at, at the moment. And what it is, I think, Elijah, and we'll come to this later on, is he does have this exalted role, but he himself, we don't want to give too much away, but but he's going to have to come to terms with his own humanity as well. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us who are in any kind of Christian leadership that there is sometimes a temptation to believe the hype. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a story which is going to... F- force us to 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 pick up on that thing that James said you know he's a man like us like mm-hmm. everything yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I I love that um phrase uh, that we're ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the extraordinary things and the you know the 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 things that we're able to do because of the gifts or skills that God has given us or the opportunities that he opens up for us uh, point people to him Mm-hmm. Don't they? Not, mm-hmm. not to us. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I I wonder sometimes if we if we play up the ordinariness too much, <laughs> you know. Whereas Elijah seems to be a man who has a confidence, so he's an ordinary man in the hands of an extraordinary God, and and has a confidence to go and speak to Ahab, the worst of the worst, and and as you said, Elaine, you know, a king who knows that he reigns under God. So it's not as though he's you know a pagan god who doesn't know anything. Of, of Yahweh, but he knows what he should be. He, he wait, as far as we understand, he's making particular choices in terms of his relationships and his practices. But Elijah has that confidence, doesn't he, that he is an ordinary man, but also I'm going to go and do it. Because, because it doesn't say that God told Elijah to go and confront Ahab. Yeah. I know we were thinking about this earlier, weren't we? Just preparing. Um, because I, I was fascinated that, that you know, one of the commentators I read 
ref- and and I I think I only read it in one of of the books, but referred back to um, chapter eleven in Deuteronomy, and there's a section there in Deuteronomy where God Himself is saying to His people that um, on the basis of the covenant that He has made with them, He will provide the the sun and the rain and the crops will grow mm. and you know they'll have what they need but if his people rebel then he will stop the rain and you know and in a sense the stopping of the rain will be the sign of the judgment coming around their rebellion and so we're not told this in the text but it it is an interesting thing isn't it to think well was that a part of the Torah that is uh, that Elijah would have known, mm. would have read, mm-hmm. we presume would have shaped his understanding of God and his ability to assess the reality of what was going on around him. Mm-hmm. So, so does this declaration about, about the rain stopping come from Elijah's time with God, and God's word and in prayer. I mean, we we don't know, mm-hmm. but it is interesting that that, that that section is there in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something as well, so that we, we're talking about Elijah just landing in. He almost arrives like Superman in this in this text. He, his dad isn't named. It's almost mm-hmm. he's without origin. It's very unusual, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he appears, and there's a incredible, remarkable thing where wherever Elijah goes, the signs of life, which are the sign of Yahweh, uh, God being present, are also there. So the water disappears from the land, but where Elijah goes, the water still runs. So Elijah lands like Superman into the text. He he doesn't have a dad that's named. uh, He just appears. And he has this incredible sense that he stands in the presence of God, that almost where Elijah is, God is very, very close by. In fact, uh, later on, we're going to see Elijah's the word is in Elijah's hand the word of God is in Elijah's hand and at the very end the widow is going to say the word of God is in your mouth so wherever Elijah is God is and more than that where God is and Elijah is life is so there's a sense of God's absence coming into the the land uh, because it's not going to have any rain anymore and Elaine's just talked there about the sense of judgment behind that but of course where Elijah goes the brook is still going to run there's going to be a famine where Elijah goes in the widow's house, the oil and the 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 wheat or the the maize or whatever it is 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 going to still exist, and then later on, of course, death, which is the absence of life, is going to come into the widow's house. But where Elijah goes, life is going to be restored again. So there's this unique sense that Elijah embodies a presence of God. We we talked uh, earlier about whether this is a stretch, but um, I I think that. Up and down is very, very important in Hebrews. So you go up to the temple, you go up to God, you go up to Zion, and you go down away from God, and above all, you always go down to Egypt. So ups and downs are very important. And the higher up you are, the closer you are in this way of thinking to God. And of course, which room in the house does Elijah live in? He lives in the upper room. Now, we never normally get told which room a prophet lives in, but he's in the upper room, and he lifts the boy's body up to the upper room later on to heal him. The point being, Elijah comes in with this unique sense of God being in him and it's it's profound and it's startling and it's remarkable. 
What's really amazing is you go to the New Testament and suddenly it's not just Elijah who has God within them, but it's every single Christian is told that Christ is in you. Christ is in you. And James will later on say Elijah is like us. And I think what one of the things that Elijah helps us to see is how we have overused that phrase God is in you so that we've become too familiar with it. But it's remarkable. It's like having a nuclear power station resident within you. Uh, and Elijah helps us to see that in all its brilliance and remarkableness and own again what it is to say that Christ's God is in us. And it is a very, I mean, it's an incredible truth, that, isn't it? And mm. I think, as you say, Neil, it is one that it, it almost seems to get, for, for many of us, it just, it just keeps getting eroded mm. for us. And, and I don't know whether that's just because of, you know, life circumstances or, um, you, you know, different things that, 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 that just lead us almost to forget that incredible truth. Mm -hmm. and, and I think for me, it's a truth that carries incredible reassurance mm -hmm. and incredible encouragement but actually also a sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how do I ensure that that life of God within me, the, the life of Christ is, is there and I'm recognizing it, but actually other people are able to recognize mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Can we move on? Because I think it, I think it plays nicely into the the next few verses, uh, which is this encounter in the um, the wadi or the ravine um, with the the raven. So so having kind of established who he is as somebody who who carries the presence of God, who is God with him, he he then he lives an obedient life, doesn't he? Because <laughs> I don't know if God told me to go out to a riverbed and some birds were going to come and feed me, I'm not sure that. I would have found it easy to faithfully follow that command. Yes, it does seem a bit kind of extreme. And although we kind of go, um, oh, isn't that lovely? He's off by the brook with the ravens. You know, after I a day or two. I find it quite a disturbing picture, these lumps of meat being dropped by carrion crows. Do you know what? This, this is an aside. But yesterday I, I was doing my uh, wedding preparation day. So I met up with all the couples who I'm going to be doing weddings for. And um, one of the couples who are getting married in Castle Mingus up the road said to me, listen, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to, uh, and do you, is this okay with you? They said, we're going to have the rings delivered by an owl. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Harry Potter-esque. Well, yeah, wow. I think they are. So apparently I spoke to somebody lately. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time these days. I'd never heard of it. Um, but it's often yeah. the way when people say we're going to do things slightly differently. Yeah, are you? <laughs> and I thought, can I justify this biblically? And then I thought, oh, yeah, Elijah being brought the, the yes, the raven swooping in. But can you imagine them just flying down oh, and then yeah. just dropping the meat in? Yeah. And what a moment to, we, we might come to this later, but that's got to say something to Elijah. It was part of him that said, was that a coincidence? But then it happens again and again and again, and he is provided. There's also hints here, aren't there, of, of bread from heaven, of food from heaven, of, of God making... Who was it? Was and maybe it, a reminder of the manna. 
Yeah, you yeah. Know, that's something we've come back to. We talked in John. We talked quite a lot about the provision of the bread. What was it? Hudson Taylor said, "God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply." Uh huh. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. But it's such a contrast as well, isn't it, for Elijah? So he, we because we don't know anything about him before he then appears on the scene. So we don't know whether he's a bit of a solitary figure. Anyway. Uh, we we do know that he's got enough courage and confidence to come and make this declaration to King Ahab. And then he's just taken out of action. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brilliant start. Now where have you gone? You know, I mean, I always remember, um, you know, at like things like SU camp and things, or you've been at a big, you know, when I used to work with students, student conference and things. And so, and everybody's just had an incredible time you know there's been lots of excitement enjoyment you know it's been a really good experience and then everybody goes home and you have to help people think about how they're going to cope when they get home and you know you're you're not in the kind of the spotlight you're not in the kind of rigmarole of the activity and everything and you just you know everybody's home life is is different but but people do feel that kind of dip don't they Uh And, I mean, we obviously see that later with with Elijah, but but this this kind of period of solitude, and and maybe I'm maybe I think about it because I am basically an extrovert, and I I still remember in my twenties having to learn how to be on my own happily, and yeah. and you know and feed that small bit of introversion in me, um, but yeah, but it is just this kind of solitary life for a while for yeah well, and, I mean, that years, would be jesus it? pattern wouldn't it yeah you know when yeah. you see jesus and he's taken out into the desert after his baptism it's a yeah my, my favorite illustration of the kind of what happens when you leave camp is uh, mike pilavachi who heads up soul survivor or did i don't know if he still does um but as well as soul survivor the fantastic festival there's also a soul survivor church and he used to make the point that even the kids from the soul survivor church when the, the week after the, the big soul survivor happened, they're still in soul survivor. They hated it as well. They're going, oh, we're back to soul survivor church again. But it's recognizing, isn't it, that on the edge, God is doing surprising things that you don't understand and don't see the purpose of. It goes back to what you said a moment ago, Elaine, when I asked you what was the effect of Bible 2020. And your first answer was, well, we don't know. There's all sorts of things mm-hmm. going on. And Elijah has to trust in this three-year Sabbath, if I can use that expression. Mm-hmm. The work of God is rumbling on. We're going to discover later on what's happening with a man called Obadiah. But just because you're on the edge, just because you feel out of it, you still got to trust that God's doing the thing that God needs to do. I think it's more than that, though, Neil. I, I think because you just said that God's work is continuing, it rumbles on when you're taken out of it. I think God's work is often the taking out of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That actually that's where the deepest work goes on. Yeah. And and that's going to be the big story that Elijah's going to have to learn as well. Yeah. And I think there's a contemporary relevance. I think we find it very difficult in our culture to to choose actively to do that, uh-huh. to retreat and, and, and be in that intimate place with God. You didn't have a phone. Didn't have a phone. Maybe that was a good thing. Yeah. You, you but I think, you know, Fiona, I think, you know, you always um, impressed me really about about some of the, you know, the regular times that you very deliberately kind of withdraw. Um, 
and you know I just know it's not it's not my pattern I mean I have to people have to find their own patterns yeah, yeah absolutely yeah but but I think that mix of you know because not none of even on the kind of extroversion introversion scale none of us are you know truly one or truly the other everybody's a mix and and I think just trying to find those opportunities where there's an openness to hear God in the quietness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he's, he's probably true for all of us, wherever yeah. we are yeah. on, that, on that kind of scale. I, th- I think in this context, isn't it, it, it's finding your true source of food. Mm-hmm. You know, so, mm-hmm. so am I going to be fed by, by the views of other people or the, the acclamation or any of that stuff, or am I actually going to choose to be fully dependent on, on, on God's provision for me? Because otherwise, you you know you, you you lose touch with who you are, don't you? And, who you are. and I wonder what Elijah began to think as the as the stream dried up. You know, because what whatever the the pattern of well, the ravens came morning and evening, didn't they? Um, and he would just settle into that pattern, but then the water started to dry up, and I wonder what. When I mean, again, we're not told, so this is surmising. But you know, you wonder what was going on in his mind about God's provision at that point. Yeah. yeah. But if the stream hadn't dried up, there would have been no widow, and there would have been no son. It, it's the the and this is a, a story of incredible ups and downs. So yeah, hey, I've escaped the drought. I've got the water. I've got the ravens. Oh no, they've gone. Uh, and then he goes to the widow. Um, the woman who has so little, and and I love that bit where he goes to her and says, "Give me more. Give me what you've got." He goes and asks the poorest possible woman for something, and and then, as we're going to discover in a moment, she's going to lose something as well. And it feels like it's that moment, isn't it? It's such a great. I love that illustration. What do you do when the brook begins to dry up? What do you do when the thing that God took you into, which for a while was going so well? seems to dry up and what it is is it's an invitation into the next chapter of the story uh, yeah and it's an invitation of verse 8 isn't it that the word of the lord came to him at that point didn't it yeah, so it's, yeah. it's the invitation of, of what are you saying yeah am i mm. am i am i relying on my own intuition around this or am i actually listening to what you what you say so the widow uh-huh. widows are significant in scripture they are <laughs> Thank you. Good point, Fiona. Thank you. They, yeah, I mean, the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, um, widows are often referred to as um, examples of those who live on the margins, examples of those who are in need. They're, they're vulnerable. I, I, you know, th- um, the vast bulk of the Bible is written in a very patriarchal culture, and so um, provision for women was always through a man, either the father, the husband, brothers. And so widows w- were regarded as um, very vulnerable category. And I think often that's why widows and orphans are, are talked about. So there's a vulnerability um, about this, this widow. And yet there she is. She's a single mom. She's got a, she's got a son. Um, but so often they're mentioned in scripture with the instruction that we are to care for them. Mm-hmm. God's people are to care for 
the widows. And and that is what makes Elijah's question quite interesting. Yeah. That he is the one who approaches in need yeah. mm-hmm. to this woman mm-hmm. who, in a, in a sense, culturally, he should have been taking the initiative to care for her. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. It completely mm-hmm. reverses the roles. And, mm-hmm. and not just a widow who's on the edge, but the, a widow who's on the very, very edge because she's a, she says, I'm about to go home and cook my last meal for my son yeah. and then we're going to die. Yeah. Is there significance in, in the fact that she's in Zarephath and Sidon? Well, Jesus certainly saw that, didn't he? Jesus saw that this was, was God on the outside. Uh, and when he went to his own hometown and said, um, there were widows all over the place, but God decided to go to the one on the, on the edge. It's a reminder that God is at work in the the places that we don't expect. And one of the things I love about your work, Elaine, is that you are constantly reminding us of how out of our English-speaking, American-British kind of world view, you are constantly reminding us that outside of that place, God is doing incredible things. Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah, yeah. I I think I'm always just struck and I, and I think what you said there Neil just illustrates it from this passage that you know yes God had a chosen people the nation of of Israel but their role was to take the message of his love and mercy to the whole world you know and 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 so this sense of God as the God of the whole world you know, is even illustrated in this uh-huh. in this passage. In- well, well, he because this widow obviously has a relate. Well, however you phrase that in Old Testament terms, a relationship with God, because he has directed a widow there mm-hmm. to supply Elijah with food. I, I think that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and she says, "As the Lord your God lives," and she used these the Israelite name for God at that point, uh-huh. so she recognizes uh-huh. this. There's a remarkable um, telling retelling of the story by Paulo Coelho, who is the uh, he's very well known for a book called The Alchemist. He comes from a Catholic background. I think he's Brazilian. Uh, but he he writes from a perspective which I think one could charitably say sits outside Orthodox Christianity. He, he's, he's big into the oneness of everything. And he has a retelling of the story in which is all about the relationship between Elijah and the widow. They, 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 they actually fall in love with each other, but never actually do anything about it. They, they're both too scared to tell to tell the other. Um, but it, it speaks... That sounds like the Netflix version. Yes, yes. Or, or it's, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the kind of midrash, isn't it, where you draw out the gaps in the story. Um, it, it is interesting that... And, and I should say, by the way, that story is all about the recognition of, of who is God. And, and and an understanding that God is bigger than the tribal understanding of a God who's just for your people. But, it, but it, I mean, clearly in the Bible text, we don't know very much about Elijah and the widow's relationship. The only thing we can say is at the point at which her son dies and Elijah, just going back to that confidence, says, give him to me. I mean, imagine having the confidence to, to say that. Give him to me and I'll take him upstairs. Uh, what kind of expectations are you setting there? And... Um, he complains to God, oh God, what have you done bringing even the calamity upon this widow with whom I am staying? It is the only point in the Elijah story where he exhibits empathy towards another human being. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it's her, the outsider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, so much ponder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the struct- I also just think, so, sorry to interrupt you there, Fiona, but 
it's fascinating, isn't it, the way she refers, the widow refers to, as surely as the Lord your God lives. Yeah. yeah. So there isn't that ownership of her, her own relationship with God. It's it's very much kind of third party. It reminds me of people, I mean, we come across people a lot who would not claim a relationship with God for themselves, but they recognize it in christians mm-hmm. and i'm thinking of people who come and ask you f- to pray yeah yeah you know so so something has has happened that that you know has knocked them for six or somebody that they love um knocked for six and but but they somehow know that to come to christians and ask them to pray is a good thing to do yeah i i get it with the weather quite often if there's like there's a big fair day happening people will say to me right Right, uh, Minister, you need to pray to your God to get the weather straightened, which is ironic in the context of this passage, which is all yes. about the weather. Yes. Um, and my tip, my response always is, well, why can't you pray? You yeah. know, uh, yeah. but it's that assumption. Do you think it changes by the end? Because she says, now that I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, she doesn't say the Lord, mm-hmm. your God. She simply mm-hmm. says the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a transformation happens for her. Yeah. Yeah. It must have. I mean, it's been so dramatic, not yeah. just the provision of the food, but, you know, the life of her son. Yeah. It's enormous. Mm-hmm. I wonder what yeah. happened to him, the son. I wonder what he went on to do. Um, there's a structure to how this story is told. So there, there's a thing called a chiasm here, which biblical scholars love to find in all sorts of different places, and I think they're a bit dubious. Um, but But when they do appear they are quite telling. And it's the idea that on the outside of a story, the the start and the end echo each other. And and then the next two bits, so the, the second bit and the second last bit echo each other. And then the third bit and the third last bit echo each other. And the point being that you look at the middle bit to really understand what's going on in the story. And in the story of the the, the widow's son being healed. There's a there's a real echo with the fact that in the first bit, the life leaves him, he, he dies. And in the last bit, the life enters him. Uh, there's an echo in the fact that uh, at one point, the Elijah gets given the body and the word to give, and then he gives it back to the widow and they gives the son back. And then he goes up to the room and then it's echoed with him coming down from the room. Anyway, at the heart of that bit of the story is the bit, this incredible moment where two things are paralleling each other and it's Elijah stretching over the boy three times and the life returning to the boy. And it's a beautiful moment of of intimacy, but also a picture of how God is at work and a human being is at work at the same time. It's a reminder to us that when we do the work of God, God chooses to do it alongside humans in this incredible intimate moment and I think the structure of the passage draws us to that deep moment of connection and if I had a an illustration for what ministry is ministry which all of us are called towards to serve God it is that moment of deep connection with people at the deep point of contact literally here the the body's being stretched is also the place where the life of God and the power of God flows in a way that we never fully understand, but we love to see. Which brings us back to that sense of Christ living mm. in me. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
That feels like quite an apt point to, to draw this part of the conversation to a close, unless there was anything else that somebody was desperate to say. I know out Neil, of you, body you were wanting to touch about out-of-body experiences. Yeah, <laughs> do you want to touch on that really briefly? Yeah, so this is the research of a guy called Bruce Grayson. Uh, Grayson spelled G-R-E-Y-S-O-N. And he is a scientist. He was an atheist. He would not claim to be a Christian, but he has certainly shifted. And he, the reason he has shifted is because of his research and out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences. And the beginning of this was when he was a psychiatrist in the 1970s. He was in the canteen of his hospital. He was called, he was buzzed to go and see a patient who had had a heart attack. He revived that patient, I, I presume through a defibrillator. And then he went next door to, to um, talk with the man's friend and say, your friend's okay, and so on. Anyway, a few days later, the, the man comes around, the patient, and he says, oh, I saw you. I saw you talking to my friend. And he's going, oh, you must have found out about that from nurses and so on. He said, I even saw the, the pasta stain that was on your tie when you were talking to him, which, of course, he'd got in the canteen before the buzzer had gone. Anyway, Bruce Grayson has gone on to investigate near-death experiences in a, in a scientific way. Remarkably, he says the evidence is irrefutable now. And he hasn't become a, a total Christian, but what he does say, it is, is absolutely evident that the life of, of the mind is bigger than the life of the brain, that, that people's perception and being is not just contained within the cells of their body. And there's an illustration of that here when... Uh, Elijah says, verse 21, let this child's life, and the word uh, that's for, for life is, is the word nephesh in Hebrew. It's sometimes uh, translated as soul. So in Psalm 103, I think it's used, oh, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Uh, and it says, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life, the soul of the child came into him again. The idea being that it came back into his body. Uh, and that would tie very much with what Bruce Grayson uh, would say which is that the, the life of who we are is not just contained in our body. It is bigger than that. And that seems to be one of the assumptions that exists in, in this passage and, and points to the fact that we are not just material beings. We are spiritual and material people. Um, very interesting. Life <laughs> is more than just... <laughs> that's More your than, word interesting interesting uh, yeah i feel along with my levitical code i'm gonna to have to go and read about the brain now um brilliant well thank you both very much for that that was a, a deep dive into the beginning of a story that i think will uh, unfold more depth as we as we go do you unfold depth we'll plummet more depths maybe get my metaphors confused now, yeah now neil you have got a new segment for us and I've been trying to come up with a catchy title. I'm not sure if we've got to it yet. We we considered maybe Glover's Others. Who on earth are they? Where do they fit in? And what's their story? Glover's Others. B-list characters you really don't want to miss. We were going to call it the B-cast or the B-list, weren't we, as well? And that's why I'm starting with a character. The first letter of their name is B. And they are found in Genesis chapter 30, verse 3, where Rachel, who is the second wife of Jacob and at this point has been unable to have a child, says to Jacob, her husband, 
Here is my maid Bilha. Go into her that she may bear upon my knees and that I too may have children through her. And Bilha, we don't know what her view is, but she is the possession of a woman who herself lives down the hierarchy. So Rachel somehow is down the hierarchy because she has fewer sons. And then even further down the hierarchy from Rachel is Bilha. And she is the woman whose who's, who's body is, is used uh, to further the, the ambition of someone who owns her. And she is caught up in this male patriarchal world. We don't know much of her story. She would have been a woman with dreams, a girl who wanted to be something one day. And this is what she's known for. She has two sons. Um, one is Dan who is a controversial figure uh, later on, particularly in the book of Judges, and is also left out the list of Israel's tribes that we see in Revelation. But her second son is Naphtali. And Naphtali, once again, will be an outsider, but but not totally forgotten. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, we discover that Jesus comes and makes his territory in the place of Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, on the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who have sat in darkness have seen a great light. Glovers others. Like it. Looking forward to how that unfolds as we go along. Now, uh, thank you both for joining us. Uh, next episode, we're going to be talking about First Kings 18. So if you're reading ahead, then that's your homework before you next listen. But in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for listening. Do keep in touch with us. Let us know how you're getting on. Uh, fire in your suggestions. What was it, Elaine, you were looking for suggestions from people? How they're using the Bible digitally? Yeah, people's interaction between like digital Bible and book version yeah Bible. yeah so do do let us know about that if that's something that you maybe have experience of or feel strongly about we would love to hear you and uh, hear from you rather and uh, we look forward to speaking to you next time so thank you for listening the outspoken bible is a podcast from scottish bible society to find ways you can share the bible go to scottishbiblesociety.org <laughs>